0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EI-TV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, we're all about connections and Ollie Barrett, who's here, first connected us with Andrew. And I think one of the reasons why our EI club, has such a lovely atmosphere is because we do enjoy the hospitality of uh, companies like Coots and they always make us feel very welcome. This, of course, is a festive EI club breakfast, which means it's the last club breakfast of the year. We do have an all-day conference next week on the Networked Nation, which all of you are very welcome to come and many of you are already attending. But in the festive spirit, you've all got a a goodie bag on your chairs and that goodie bag includes the programme for the spring which has such delights as discussing the royal wedding and Britishness, the nature of war, philanthropy and the arts and once again I I hope that we've put on a program for you that's uh, worthy of your attention because it's very welcome indeed to have people of your uh, seniority and caliber giving us your time first thing in the morning. So I'm just here to say thank you very much for giving us your interest and indeed your membership over the past year. I'm going to hand you to the very wonderful Peter York. Those of you who have seen him in action running the comment awards know what a delight it is to listen to him. He's going to introduce the speakers. They are nothing if not eclectic this morning. Peter, over to you. And you are, of course, being podcast for posterity, so it's a bit late to feel shy, but please be on notice. Thank you, Peter.
1: Well, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, EI clubbers, and membership has its privileges, remember. I'm, I actually came this morning, uh, tipped off by the Today programme, to check out my overdraft interest. And then, lo and behold, Julia grabbed me and da- down there and said, you, you must do some work. And you see, I'm not a perpetual EI person, I help out when they're busy, as Michael Barrymore used to say. <laughs> now, um, you've, I know that you, you've struggled through the blizzards. You're so brave. I, I, it is very difficult still in South London, isn't it? <laughs> that is true. Now, this is our final thought for the day for this year. It's a very, very sad thought, and I hope you've enjoyed the mince pies. And it's that breakfast moment when an eclectic group of speakers of very high degree talk informally, informally, in a caring, sharing way with you, their peers, in a close-knit and very cordial atmosphere of relaxed elitism. Now, (laughs) that's the way the world's run. Look, they're safe in the knowledge that there'll be no spoonerisms this morning, <laughs> and no killer inquisitions. And our speakers today absolutely demonstrate the feverishly eclectic range of EI's network and, and sympathies, and sympathies. They include a prominent, he, would, he denied the word neocon, young entrepreneur here, a distinguished televisionist here, and a very senior serving naval officer. After they've spoken, it'll be your turn for Q&A. Now, I'm going to introduce them in the, uh, the, the order that they'll speak. Elaine Bedell is one of those fantastic powerhouse television ladies. Um, and the real powerhouse people in television are ladies. And <laughs> she's director at, someday, well, at some point. Both of you have been in television. You will explain what these titles mean. Director of Entertainment at Comedy at ITV. She oversees, now just wait for this, The X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, Dancing on Ice, I'm a Celebrity, Piers Morgan's Life Stories. Yesterday I was at lunch where Piers Morgan was being congratulated for taking over from Larry King. And he's a wonderful, wonderful person without a scintilla of (laughs) self-doubt. And he got up to take the group's applause and then he thought, No, that's not good enough. Then he climbed on a chair and then he climbed on the table. (laughs) Completely wonderful. Now, like so many in telly, she was a BBC trainee and she joined from the BBC where she was Controller Entertainment... What was it? Controller Entertainment. Controller Entertainment Commissioner. And along the way, she worked in production company land, Tiger Aspect, and her own production company, Watchmaker, with Clive James. That's a bit of experience. I'd love love to hear about that. She's got a BAFTA and a comedy ward and every possible gong that a televisionist (laughs) could have. Commodore R.K. Tarrant is director naval staff. Have I got that right? And that's your, your current... He joined the RN in 79 in time to see service in the Falklands, then was in the submarine service, and then became an internal teacher... of of naval staff, 1994 joined the U.S. Atlantic Fleet, which is a wonderful bit of it, in exchange in Norfolk, Virginia, the largest naval base in the world. His own command in 1997, a Whitehall warrior, sort of, from 2001, policy planner, the the Navy's equivalent of a policy wonk. And Deputy Director of Force Development. Luke Johnson is a very enthusiastic capitalist and a serial entrepreneur. He... I tried it this morning. He won't have himself described as a neocon, but he sort of admits that his brother Daniel, who's founder founder of Standpoint, might just be a neocon. Let's say his views are very robust in all quarters. He's... He's the chair and owner of Giraffe and Patty Valley, Patisserie Valerie, which is everywhere now. So if you live in a nice part of town, you'll have one near you. (laughs) He's um, uh, certainly... We've got both near me. Um, He's the the former king of the Ivy Caprice, etc. chain before the Richard Caring takeover in the entire London world and New York world and everything else world. And... He's a, a ser- also a serial journalist, used to write for the Telegraph, now writes for the FT, former chairman of Channel 4, and um, something else now. New things. Yes, yes you'll, you'll tell us all about those. Anyway, they're going to speak in that order, starting with Elaine, who was just going to share her most intimate thoughts with you. <laughs>
2: Well, maybe not. Um, hi, hi, so I'm Elaine. Um, and uh, televisionist, I think you've described me as. Um, uh, very- Hello, Or Easter. Yes. Um, very exciting title. Um, yes, I look after all entertainment and comedy programs on the ITV channels. Um, and I'm very jet lagged. I got in yesterday from Australia, uh, where I've been looking after I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is uh, one of our big shows in the autumn. Um, And it provided me with one of my favourite moments, I think, certainly in my top 10 moments of working in television, when I was asked by Anton Deck to adjudicate on uh, whether we could describe an item that we were about to give Stacey Solomon to eat as a kangaroo's vagina, Um, which indeed was what it was. Um, And the discussion was, was vagina really too technical a term uh, to describe this? item. Um, And indeed, we spent several minutes exploring other options, um, none of which really felt quite as appropriate as vagina. Um, And so we did indeed end up describing it as a kangaroo's vagina. I pointed out we'd already got Sean Ryder of the Happy Mondays to eat a camel's penis, so it didn't really seem uh, that there should be much difference. Anyway, uh, we decided um, on the kangaroo vagina description, and Stacey topped it all by, when being given it, going, Oh, you might have shaved it first. (laughs) So, uh, many, many great golden television moments. Um, uh, I'm a celebrity climax last weekend with 12 million viewers. um, uh, After uh, three weeks on air, averaging um, around 10 million viewers every night. Um, I also look after The X Factor, which has been on the air now for 17 weeks. Uh, climax is this weekend with a, a double final on Saturday and Sunday. Um, and uh, as, as uh, was said, I was previously uh, the controller of entertainment at the BBC where I looked after Strictly Come Dancing. And Strictly Come Dancing this year is also having an absolutely bumper year. It's, uh, it's got fantastic ratings and its climax, its final, is the weekend after next. Um, And so, uh, after that, we're well and truly into the Christmas schedule on television. Um, So my thought for the day, basking in the warm glow of these family favourites, these great kind of powerhouses of popular culture, um, and of course, in the week of Coronation Street's 50th anniversary, my thought for the day is, thank God for television. Um, In this mad, mad madcap run up to Christmas, when we rush around buying essential and probably mostly non-essential items for Christmas, like uh, Christmas tree lights, I don't understand why it is that you take your Christmas tree lights off a tree, put them in a box, in a loft, get them out, and they're working perfectly fine. You get them out a whole year later, having not touched them, put them on the tree, and none of them work. Um, But there you are, running around buying spare bulbs and those concertina bells that you hang from the ceiling... Uh, which now Woolworths have closed, are extremely hard to come by. Um, And we rush around buying all these things, making sure that our ritualistic Christmases happen. But the one essential item, I think, of anybody's family Christmas, and probably historically, is this, the bumper edition of the Christmas Radio Times. Um, This year, 279 pages of it. um, 279 pages of fantastic British entertainment. Um, interestingly, always a cartoon on the cover of the Christmas Radio Times. When you're a producer, you long for your programme to get the cover of the Radio Times. It's it's seen as a great accolade, and it'll be a photo of your key protagonists or some element of your programme. Never at Christmas. At Christmas, it's always a cartoon, usually a snowman. This time, um, I think Nick Park has designed this, especially for the cover of the Radio Times. Um... But what Christmas is complete without the copy of the Radio Times? And the truth is that in the past, the schedulers have always tried to put programmes on at Christmas uh, that have that classic tag family viewing, where cross-generations of families can sit down and enjoy the same programme. Um, The sorts of programmes that get talked about afterwards are anticipated, everybody looks forward to, kind of provide a warm glow. for the program for the for the family um and everybody remembers historical programs more christmas uh Morecambe and wise christmas eastenders uh when den served the papers on angie uh, to the man born i think in fact was one of the highest rating christmas programs ever doctor who the list is endless um but the truth is television is no longer just for christmas Uh, we are now enjoying a golden age of television when these sorts of cross-generational programs, the sorts of programs that bring entire groups of people together across generations to watch television go out at the time that it's scheduled, is happening throughout the year but especially in the autumn at this time now, X Factor, Strictly Come Dancing, I'm a Celebrity, Britain's Got Talent, Uh, all these shows are doing what traditionally was always done at Christmas Um, And the biggest shows are getting bigger. Downton Abbey this year um, on ITV1, uh, its final episode was watched by 10.7 million viewers. That's the highest rating episode for a new drama series since 2003. Um, And in this week, Coronation Street enjoys its 50th anniversary. Who'd have thought when that first episode was broadcast that 50 years later it would still be the highest rating soap opera in the UK? So thank God for television, and in my case, thank God for Simon Cowell. Um, there you are. I've managed to put God and Simon Cowell in the same sentence, uh, something he'd appreciate. Um, but I suppose the interesting thing is what does it mean when you're managing some of these huge juggernauts, these, these very precious uh, programs that the nation is watching and cares about very passionately? Um, well, the truth is it's exhilarating, um, and it's also quite scary. Um, what you try and do is you, you, you can't second-guess the audience. You have to believe that you are the audience. Your instincts as a commissioner and a producer and a manager of these programmes have to be the same as the audience, um, or you'll be missing, missing the point. Um, but at the same time, you want to be slightly ahead of the audience. You want to be giving them surprises, giving them twists and turns, giving them something perhaps they're not quite e- expecting but you don't want to upset them at the same time. And we spend a lot of time debating this. How much can you kind of push and pull and shape the format uh, to kind of keep the audience interest really kind of alert and sparky, but but not upset them or feel that you're kind of changing something that they feel um, very... Very possessive about. And remember, in a lot of these shows, in Strictly Come Dancing and X Factor, it is the audience that's deciding the outcome of the show. They they have this very very special relationship with these programmes. They're voting uh, to decide on the final outcome of the show. Um, so you have to make sure that you're kind of on your toes. I mean, Strictly Come Dancing last year was widely believed not to be its most successful year. Um, this year they gave it a fresh look of paint, a fantastic cast. It's back, bigger and better than it's ever been before. In X Factor, we introduced a number of tiny format changes this year, including the four wildcard contestants. Yes, including Wagner. Um, may or may not have been a good thing, but no doubt provided a great deal of kind of conversation and entertainment. Um, and I remember perhaps one of the most interesting conversations I had with Simon Cowell was at the beginning of 2009. When we were looking at, uh, we were just beginning Britain's Got Talent. This was the year of Susan Boyle. And um, it was at the time when we were facing the gloomiest financial forecasts. Um, that January, February of 2009, all the prognosis was very dark. It was very dark for, tele- for commercial television. Advertising um, was seen to be falling through the floor. Um, And generally the mood of the nation was quite down, everybody was quite anxious, Um, no question that people were cutting back on going out. Um, And we decided that what we needed to do with Britain's Got Talent, which of course has that very kind of critical title, was try and lift the mood of the nation a bit. Um, And we looked back at the previous years, Britain's Got Talent, and thought, we we must make sure we're not in any way cynical or um, Uh, the the, the show is an entirely joyful thing. These are plucky Britons, some of them very eccentric, some of them incredibly talented, who've got the courage to go up on the stage and display their talents, whatever they are, and it must be, we wanted it to be in a warm atmosphere that 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 was done, and I think uh, we succeeded in that that year. It was one of the... Night after night, we we stripped at the final, and it was a very, very kind of warm place to be, and indeed, the final of that show got 19 million viewers, the kind of figures that you previously only got at Christmas. Um, and so I think it was um, it was a very important thing to kind of try and uh, provide for the nation the kind of entertainment they could get at home uh, that that um, improved the outlook a little in entertainment terms. Um, Many people predicted the death of television with uh, Sky Plus and various other forms of recording. Um, We now have 300 channels to choose from, and yet the main channels are doing better than ever before. Um, And uh, let's face it, television is the biggest shared culture we have. These juggernaut shows have showed how much people enjoy them, share in the experience of them. And my belief is that we need television... Uh, more now than we've ever needed it before. Thank
1: you. Well, thank you very much, Elaine. And it's lovely to know that ITV is in safe hands—not <laughs> the torrent of dumbed-down filth its detractors said—and <laughs> into the future with Downton Abbey and Coronora. Um, <laughs> I love. Anyway, it's postmodern. It's a very, very postmodern thought, Commander Tarrant.
3: Thanks, thanks, Peter. Um, I, I was wondering what my connection to um, uh, <laughs> 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 Elaine Elaine would be, actually, uh, but it's more than you think. And as a serious point, I want to start with Elaine. Thanks for X Factor supporting Help for Heroes. It's uh, been a huge thing for us, and it creates a huge amount of morale. <clears throat> for our our point. Um, I don't want you to go away in the end of this talk thinking I voted for Wagner either. It would be (laughs) not my sort of position. But I think there's another link as well uh, that I just really want to get across. Uh, And if there are three takeaways for for this, um, I want to get across the point that the sea is important to you. I want to get across a theme that actually the sea is turning into the land. And I really want your advice on dealing with a subject that I call sea blindness, and I can't think of a better audience uh, to to help me with that. Christmas is going to be an interesting time for the armed forces. We have um, gusting 10,000 people in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, Many of you will not realize that about uh, 10% of those, about 1,000 of those, are in the naval service. And next year, from sort of, I think, April till October, you actually will see that about 30 to 40% of those will be naval service, because, of course, the naval service is bigger than just um, those people on the Briny Sea. It's also the Royal Marines as well, and 3 Commando Brigade are deploying to Afghanistan. Um, Additionally, of course, at Christmas, we're going to have about 13 ships, and submarines deployed, uh, some east of Suez, some in the uh, Atlantic keeping the deterrent going, some in the South Atlantic. We're involved in a serious and persistent business, and we need to understand why that is. The sea is important because I would have said that in some areas, and there's a sort of little fact, that we wouldn't be able to connect with Elaine's business unless we had the sea. Because actually 95% of the tellies that come, come by sea from places built abroad. And therefore, the sea is in your daily lives. Things have changed though. When you were living near ports, when the Navy was larger, when we had our own fleet, you had a connection through your families, you had a connection through the towns in which you worked with the sea. That's changed. That connection is still there, but you don't see it. You now get on EasyJet, you go across the, uh, the tunnel, you have many breakfasts flying back from Australia, uh, you do all that sort of thing. I do that too. But that doesn't mean it's not important to you at all. Um, and the serious point I have for you is that if you take a view that um, energy is what drives our economy, and we're shifting from an oil based economy where we had our own, uh, uh, our own stocks of oil into what is going to be a net importer based around liquid natural gas coming in through Milford Haven between Algeria and Qatar. Very shortly the nation's reserve of fuel will be at sea in large liquid natural gas tankers about four or five hundred miles apart coming from uh, Algeria and Qatar. And we're going to become a net importer of energy. Now, you can say, well, that's fine. I mean, everybody wants to promote energy view to to you. But actually, what we need for energy to come here is stability in these regions that are actually quite complicated uh, places politically, socially, and culturally very different from ourselves. And that's where the sea comes in. The sea is an extraordinary network that allows you to go. Equally, uh, obviously, much more long-lasting, but equally as powerful as the Internet and so forth. When you go on eBay and you... uh, Perhaps eBay is not such a good example, but when you go on sort of Amazon and you decide to buy your book and and so forth, um, it will be sent away, but it'll get here in a container, and that container vessel will come to one of the ports near you, offload and off you go. So the vision I want you to have, please, I really want you to have this vision. I want you, when you wake up, and I know you will because you're all very intelligent people, and sadly you'll remember a large bearded man sitting in the corner telling you this, I want you to look at your Christmas tree on Christmas Day and I want you to see water underneath it. And remember that nine out of ten of your presents have come by sea to you this year. It's a very important point, and if there's a break in that chain, if there's a break in that energy chain to get here, then that's going to affect us very quickly. Uh, And it isn't, uh, uh, from our perspective, uh, just a naval activity. We work closely with the rest of government, the Foreign Office, and other places to create this stability. But if we weren't protecting those choke points, if we weren't doing that and looking ahead then it's actually going to be quite a serious problem for this country, I would suggest, in the future. And so I would ask for your support for our people and operations. But I would ask for your own support for what you want out of the sea to make sure in future you've still got a secure base for energy and trade, which is what we're about. One of the things I just wanted to mention about the sea was its extraordinary legal position. It is the only place that we can go 12 miles off another country. There are, I don't know how many countries, 200 odd, and about 180 of them, 150 of them, have uh, somewhere in that region, have um, shorelines. So you can go to 12 miles off somebody's coast and be there and exert influence and power. And that's what we've been doing in this country for a while. And it's very clear that as we look towards a globalized world, uh, we're going to see the rise of competition for all the things that we have here in the West that other people, quite rightly, will want in other parts of the world. When that competition comes around, because there is only a finite amount of oil and so forth, we're going to have to make sure that our national interests are protected. That's not just done by fighting, but it is done by having an aura of power which we can distribute uh, uh, across um, Uh, the countries where we need influence. So particularly for me Gulf, Africa and other areas where we're connected. Um, So why therefore is the, uh, the sea turning into the land? People are waking up to it just as they're waking up to space, waking up to the internet. They're waking up to the fact that just over there, just over that horizon is oil and energy and other things that are under the sea. So if you go to West Africa, take a country like Ghana for the moment, they've just got an oil find off their coast. I think one of the largest oil finds in the world recently has just happened off Brazil. But particularly in these places, these countries are now seeing their ability to take control over the assets that they have that help you. And we should support this. Let me give you a little broad example. You'll all be familiar with uh, the UK's involvement in Sierra Leone over the last uh, 10 or so years. And one of the things you may not know is that actually we, with sort of European-type issues, have helped fish out the yellowfin tuna off that coastline. If we can get Sierra Leone to assist itself and look after that uh, fishing ground, then that's $70 million US per year that goes to that country. That may not mean much in the huge economy that we have here, but it's massive where that's concerned. And giving those people that sort of business, providing the governance behind it, creates stability. Stability creates the conditions for trade. Trade creates the conditions for your tellies to get there so that we can give Elaine all the votes she needs, uh, but not to Wagner. (laughs) I do want to end with one point. None of you really know this. None of you really link to it. I see nodding heads there, but I don't see sort of fervent, uh, you know, stuff. Your view, sadly, of the Navy appears to be a bloke stuck about 140 feet above a square, not very far away from here. And, And I like that too. But the Navy is your future because the sea is also your future. Why don't we understand it? We call it sea blindness. With threats about energy. I'm not trying to create sea panic, but I really would be interested in this panel's view and this audience's view of telling me how to get the message across so you can have a really good Christmas next
1: year. Thank you. That's a a fascinating thought, sea blindness, because I think Everyone above a certain age in this country grew up with a sense of national identity based on the sea, and certainly, up, you know, when I was a kid, the stories I read, which weren't about brave animals, were about the sea. We're about I mean, Moby Dick, Peter the Whaler, Hornblower—all those sorts—and I was fed on that. It doesn't happen now. How does one retranslate that? into something that's relevant for an- another generation and relevant to our concerns, well, a lot of communicators here, get get weaving. Luke. <coughs> I thought that my brief
4: speech today should be uh, something on a seasonal theme, so uh, here is my idea. Uh, the best gift that you can give anyone for Christmas is a job. For as Thomas Carlyle said, A man willing to work and unable to find work is perhaps the saddest sign that fortune's inequality exhibits under the sun. The high point of being an entrepreneur is not actually cashing out and waving a big check in the air. The best bit, the noble bit, the bit that really matters, is when you create employment. And the worst part about being a business owner is when you have to lay people off. Now, most research shows that startups create jobs, not large corporates. And we need more citizens to become entrepreneurs and to help create more jobs. For as Nobel Prize winner Mohamed Yunus said, everyone is an entrepreneur, but only the lucky come to know it. The West faces a crisis of chronic unemployment. And as the public sector cuts really start to bite here in the UK... And for example, there are going to be many thousands in the armed forces next year and in the coming years. I fear that the numbers out of work here will rise steadily. And meanwhile, a major study by Gallup has shown that in every country in the world, the number one priority of citizens is to get a good job. They surely all subscribe to Seneca's view, indolence is stagnation. Employment is life. With a job comes income, comes pride, comes a purpose. Whereas unemployment is strongly correlated with crime, mental illness, alcoholism and broken communities. (coughs) Tragically, Britain now has a higher youth unemployment level than Germany, Denmark, Austria, Norway and Holland. And I'm afraid to say, because it would be easy to think that was right, but it's not, government is simply not the solution to this problem. Broadly, what government needs to do is get out of the way and allow entrepreneurs to innovate and build new companies. We desperately need the private sector to plug this gap, for a nation with high levels of unemployment is a sad and unproductive one. And I believe our best and possibly only hope is for an army of entrepreneurs to step forward and generate new companies and new wealth, hiring as they go. Now, giving someone a job is rarely an altruistic act. It's not treated in at all the same way as philanthropy, because employer and employee tend to act in their own best interests. But that doesn't mean to say it's any less worthwhile. Because creating jobs doesn't just help give someone an income and motivation. It generates taxes and saves the state welfare payments. And it may even help generate exports to offset our trade deficit. Now, in talking to entrepreneurs and business owners, the single best way to boost job creation, if the government is to do anything, would be to dismantle much of the burdensome employment legislation that is currently placed, particularly for smaller and early stage firms. These are companies that cannot afford full-time HR departments and can ill afford the effects of things like employment tribunals. Unlike the last recession, this time around, we really are competing in so many sectors, with Indian and Chinese rivals. We have a much higher wage rate and property structure here, and we also shackle ourselves with onerous regulation. If that continues, then employers will invariably opt, if they can, for outsourcing or automation. And we will be left with high structural unemployment and the untold misery that accompanies it. So my suggestion to you this morning is for two New Year resolutions. One, if you're an entrepreneur, carry on employing people and hopefully create some new jobs. And if you're not an entrepreneur, please consider becoming one. (laughs) And secondly, if you're a politician, policymaker, or opinion former in any shape or form, please make it your daily priority when you wake up, as well as thinking about the sea say to yourself, what can I do to create jobs? Because as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the crowning fortune of man is to be born to some pursuit which finds him employment and happiness, be it baskets or broadswords or canals or statues or songs. Thank you.
1: Well there's another challenge for you, take on 10 people today and then another 10 people tomorrow. There's a problem of course about that word, one it's long and foreign and two it's associated with George Bush but if it could make it into a nicer shorter English word like saint or hero instead of entrepreneur then we'd be away but go to it. Now it's your turn, your questions and comments, no ranting, otherwise we'll have to cut you off, (laughs) and um, address it to whoever you want to ask. Charming people will come round with microphones. They have a very nice class of help here.
5: Hello, good morning. Um, my name's Sue. I happen to be uh, married to somebody who's in the Royal Navy, but only part time. Um, he's actually um, a Royal Naval Chaplain at the, in the reserve. Changed perspectives on the army was the fact that soldiers were allowed to speak for themselves, and it seems to me that very often we see a gre- you know—we see a ship, or we see an organisation in the Navy, or we see the sea and the vastness of these things but we rarely hear from or about individual sailors and individual personal stories. So if you want me to think of the sea, that's one thing. If you want me to think of the Navy, that's another. And if you want me to think of these things in a way that I can feel them, then I need to feel an individual story.
3: I think human interest stories are you know, a, a huge part of what we, what we have to do. I, I think answering your broader question, uh, I would say that I want you to be interested in the sea, I want you to be interested in the Navy, and I want you to be interested in our sailors. Because we can have all the ships and clever equipment we have, but without the sailors, the Navy is nothing. And they do a fabulous job. What we have done, uh, and we have a much better relationship, I think, with some of the larger commissioners now, Channel 5 and so forth are are good examples of this, where we have uh, done programs uh, focusing on the lives of sailors in ships at sea, and to see how, the, how they do them. And, and if you watch uh, Dave, you'll see them come round with, with, with a fairly regular type of, type of interest. Sadly, you'll actually see my happy face in, in, in one of these two. I, I think they go as, as they do a good service for us. But what they don't do is they don't focus on what the sea means to you. It focuses on what the sea means to the sailor. The connection still between the sailor, he or she, and yourself is still lost, and actually is still your telly, uh, and that's the point I need to get across to you.
1: Thanks. Is there a latter-day hornblower's drama to be done by your drama colleagues?
2: Well, possibly. I've just received the card, so (laughs) we'll we'll no doubt be talking. (laughs)
6: I wonder if you're being slightly disingenuous. Uh, You talked about the impact (coughs) of Sky Plus potential broadcasting sort of not having been realized. I think that's a cipher for really the impact of the internet on broadcasting. Uh, And uh, your director of ITV Live, Dominic Cameron, spoke at a conference I program called Media (coughs) Futures Conference last year very engagingly about the way that ITV was thinking about uh, the internet as a parallel (coughs) medium to broadcast TV. Uh, And Matt Locke at an event recently who's uh, head of education, I think, at Channel 4. Yeah, maybe government
4: can have a role. I think that role models are very important, and I agree that there should be more positive images of people out there creating jobs and the importance uh, that they fulfil in a society, and particularly one like ours that faces quite serious threats, I think, of structural unemployment. Um, And possibly government investment in say, research and development to help provide innovation, new technologies, can have some use. But I think, ultimately, it isn't down to the state. We mustn't look to uh, central government. We must look to our own abilities to uh, create companies and provide work for ourselves and others. And, you know, if you look at the history of capitalism, it is of individuals, not of the state, creating businesses. They can can help with discoveries and with the right sort of economic conditions, but ultimately it's down to individuals to be inventive and to be energetic and to drive forward progress through thousands of separate efforts.
1: So it's not down to David Cameron re-establishing himself as something like Ronald Reagan with a a forward-looking vision?
4: I, I think that's helpful, but I don't think it's the single most important thing, no.
1: Elaine, multi-platform, interrelated... Yeah,
2: yes. No, you're quite right. ...tweeting I mean, I, ITV. You, you're absolutely right. It's become a very essential part of the experience. I referred only to the recording devices as a, a previously sort of historical idea that that would kill off the idea of kind of community viewing at the time it was broadcast, which clearly it hasn't. It's, it's complemented. That um, I mean, it, I don't. I was listening to Chris Moyles this morning coming in, who, who, he and his team were talking about the fact that they now do not watch television without tweeting at the same time, and let's face it, Twitter is what a year old, only slightly more than a year old, and so the answer is it's a constant work in progress because the technology, the new platforms keep arriving, and therefore in in kind of old-fashioned forms of broadcast we're continually trying to sort of work out how to embrace them how to work with them itv live has been fantastic for us um, and is another way of the audience having a conversation with us um, i mean i think what these and they are mostly entertainment formats but what i think these television formats have done is bring the audience into the process of of making television um, and by voting And it was a very old-fashioned thing of simply picking up the phone and dialing a number. But what these other platforms provide is other ways of interacting with the programme, whether it's joining, um, you know, ITV Live to be part of the conversation, or being on Twitter and sharing the experience. There there are many forms of doing it, and it's making the entertainment experience so much richer. Um, But in terms of sort of definitive ways, I mean, we are having to constantly sort of evolve along with the technology as it arrives.
1: Well, it was a lovely vision, all Britain clustered in front of that family television, wasn't it? There you are. (coughs) Um, At the back there.
7: Um, I'm I'm talking to Luke Johnson here, a very impassioned, obviously um, extraordinary uh, cry for mercantile nation, all that. Hard to argue with you, but the way you slipped in, a couple of things I thought I would... Um, argue with you on that. First of all, oh, sorry, oh sorry, I'm Yasmin on the pipe
1: It is Yasmin.
7: It is Yasmin. Um, India, of course, power moving eastwards, you said, you know, with India and China. Actually, workers' rights in both of those countries should make us very fearful. And I don't think it is right to emulate the disastrous models that are being Uh, developed in those countries in the interests of business. Uh, Just watching Ian Hislop has been um, extraordinary. You know, the the do-gooders of the Victorian age who had to remind business that there was more to business than business. So I really... And these employment rights you you disdain a little bit are hard-fought, equality rights and workers' rights, which if we shelved because we're in recession, I think would take us backwards, not forwards.
4: Well, I didn't suggest and I wouldn't suggest that we should emulate the uh, systems that they have in India or China. They're very different countries uh, and uh, there's no prospect of us doing that. Um, I think we're not just in a recession. I think the West is undergoing a very serious structural transformation which the recession has accelerated. And I think if we want to be in denial, that's fine, but I think if we want to uh, maintain, let alone improve our standard of living and offer our children reasonable prospects for work, then I, have to, I think we have to get realistic, and this is a time of hard choices, and uh, for those people, and I spend all my time with entrepreneurs, I spend all my time with people who are employing and creating jobs, there are trade-offs, and as a society we have to work out, do we want to end up like one of those countries, you could argue places like France and Italy, a bit like that, Where Japan, for example, where you have a shrinking number of people who have wonderful job security and tend to be older and well paid, and then you have increasing numbers of what they call precarious people who are on contract, who have no job security and are very poorly paid. Because employers are no longer willing to take the risk of employing people. And it's very easy for people to talk who have never actually been there on a Wednesday and they are not sure if they can meet the payroll on Friday. And they might have to mortgage their home or take out money on their credit card to do it. And until you've been there, you're not really, in my opinion, entitled to talk about the issues entrepreneurs face.
3: Thank you, Peter. Ollie Barrett. Uh, I'm a little bit biased here because I must admit, I think the scheme I run where we hand 30,000 kids a tenner and give them a month to see what they can turn it into would make cracking television viewing. (laughs) (laughs) So I declare that. You can file that under (laughs) shameless (laughs) in the plug stakes. My question to Luke and to Elaine is... Did
2: it have to be legal?
3: Uh, Well, no, we're very open-minded about that. We (laughs) throw down the gauntlet, and some of them surprise us. My my question to Elaine and to Luke is, what do you think of the way in which entrepreneurs and, indeed, entrepreneurship are presented on our television screens? And I'm not there talking about the news, particularly about other things, other programmes. I'd love to get both your takes on that, please.
4: Uh, Well, um, I think that just about net... Dragon's Den and The Apprentice are good, but it's a very close-run thing. I think that in some respects, they have raised the profile of entrepreneurship and of venture capital and so forth. But I have to say that they, because they are... Uh, subtly, by the way, the BBC originally pretended they were business programming. They now call them entertainment, and that's right. They are entertainment, and they are a complete caricature. And as Elaine will accept, and we all know, television isn't real life. It's a stage thing, even if it's a reality program. And so neither The Apprentice, where, for example, in this day and age, Alan Sugar says things like, you're fired, which we all know is an impossible remark to make in the modern workplace. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, I, I struggle with any of the people on those programs, rather the you know, weekly stars, not necessarily the... the the, the people who go on and the candidates and so forth, but the weekly stars as being ideal role models, encouraging people to see the upsides and the benefits and the positive and the social aspects of entrepreneurship and creating jobs and investment. Uh, But overall still, I think they're just about worthwhile. I think it's a shame that there aren't slightly more serious programmes, but I understand they will get 200,000 viewers rather than 12 million.
2: I'm a huge fan of The Apprentice and, and Dragons Den, and especially this year's Apprentice. I think it's it's been great. I mean, Luke's right. Of course, it's always slightly larger than life. These are kind of uh, exaggerated characters for <coughs> drama and entertainment. But nonetheless, I think they do inculcate it, particularly in young people. Um, and and The Apprentice we know has a has a quite young skewing audience. They do they do suggest that this is but you need to kind of get up off your arse and 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 uh do what you can for yourself and and i think that is an incredibly useful message however it is couched in kind of entertainment and drama but if that's what lures people in to watch it i think that underlying message is is a good one and i agree with luke it's it's a shame there aren't there aren't more versions of it it's very you know, obviously there are lots of current affairs programmes which cover the business community, um, but those are two outstanding, um, uh, popular versions I think, and and very worthwhile having.
1: Well, once upon a time, the BBC had, maybe still has, a unit called business, and, weirdly called Business and Adventure, which started with troublesho- which started with troubleshooter, run by somebody called Robert Thurkle. A troubleshooter, which was Harvey Jones, and then it went on to, to um, a number of epic tales of the trade-offs that business people at all sorts of levels of size have to make, and turned it into almost drama doc. It was very, very adventurous. I, <coughs> I remember you starred in one of them, didn't you, most notably? Um, and that, you know, that got people into the whole business of what you know, what being an entrepreneur was all about. Julia?
0: Yes, I'm very struck by the Commodore's point about the practicality of the sea because essentially the televised versions of the sea are romantic and we think of the sea as romantic. And I'm wondering whether you think this new media age where everything is continuously commented on, I mean the point about X Factor my kids, they look at the X Factor websites between the shows because it's a continuous narrative. How are you going to balance the fact that we need to feel emotive about the sea and at the same time you're talking in very robust, practical and indeed political terms about what the sea means and, and the security of it?
3: I, I think there are two points that strike me out of that. The first is media attention uh, is persistent. It continues all the time. The whole news channel sort of issue goes on. That actually is now applying potentially more pressure to our operational commanders uh, overseas because if things go wrong, they're found out much more quickly. I'm not saying they shouldn't be found out, but they are. And so there is a great deal of handling and confidence needed by our commanders to operate competently. Competence has become a really serious business in the way the sea is provided. The second point to you is that we, as a community, that's the Royal Navy, uh, the Merchant Marine, the Chamber of Shipping, all the industries uh, that go towards the sea, and they're about, I think, uh, it is the third largest sort of sector in uh, in this country need to work harder together to make sure that um, we get our point across to you. It wasn't until the spectre of piracy happened that perhaps we drove ourselves together with the Merchant Marine in terms of operating with them, giving uh, a view that actually we could work together on this. Uh, The Merchant Marine prior to that uh, you know, paid their taxes and expected us to provide, we provided in a rather distant view. That connection is now breaking down as competition comes up. The the how do you do it is is the real question, because I, I think Luke's point is right. It's not <laughs> desperately interesting, except uh, when you don't get your telly, when you don't get something, when there's a serious problem. We've seen a bit of it, you know, uh, when we lived in Volcano Land, uh, a, a little bit sort of earlier in the year, suddenly everybody realised that actually this place didn't shut down because we were getting 90% of whatever we got from the sea. But, but it wasn't a, a sort of larger point that was was taken on. It, it's a bit like you know the sea works until it goes wrong, but we don't want it to go wrong, and you're going to have to invest more in it if you don't want it to go wrong in the future i think is my point i haven't really answered your question because it's a complex one to to sort of grapple with i
0: just think the most fantastic matchmaker give out of this elaine commissions some incredibly inventive <laughs> series <laughs> and we'll be taking full credit for such matchmaking. No. <laughs>
1: time for two more questions
6: thank you tony gilland i wanted to pursue luke's point about structural transformation a, a little bit more um, because I, I got a lot of sympathy for the idea of government getting out of the way, but it doesn't seem to me to be enough. Uh, and I was very struck by the Commodore's point about an aura of power. And it strikes me that having a gunboat 12 miles off the ocean, or off, the, off the land, actually doesn't create an aura of power. I'm sure it puts the wind up people, and that's uh, in certain circumstances obviously no bad thing. But we don't have an aura of power in this country. When you look at all the stuff coming out of WikiLeaks, nothing of any great interest really, um, what strikes you, or when you look at the tuition uh, fees uh going on, is a lack of conviction in this country about how we manage our way into the future. So my question to all of the panel, including uh, 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 um, from the television world, is how do we reestablish a sense of conviction about wanting to shape the future uh, in our country? Because if we don't do that, However many budding entrepreneurs we have, um, there won't be a sense of, of moving forward uh, and people coming together and it can't all be done through the TV, as much as I enjoy Britain's Got Talent.
1: So, national pride, national momentum, national purpose, cohesion, come on Tarrant.
3: Uh, Sean. Um, Luke quoted Seneca. Seneca also said that if you don't know to which port you're going, no wind is favourable. And the reason you don't think we have an aura of power is because you're very comfortable, you don't feel threatened, and that's the position. Perhaps we need to feel a little less comfortable, and then we'd think about our future in a more precise and focused way. But let's take 2050... Somewhere well east of here are going to be two very large powers who are going to be equally as powerful as anything in the West. Somewhere all around us, we're going to go from six billion by current issues to nine billion people. Somewhere uh, near us, climate change could have changed by then by two degrees. So rather than my theme of saying the sea is turning into the land, quite a lot of the land appears to be turning into the sea. Somewhere, therefore, the conditions will change, and we'll be using the Arctic routes and so forth. These are issues that really intelligent people such as yourselves need to think about in order to provide us with a purpose. You know, taking the Roman theme a little bit further, for, for those of us who've sort of struggled but not really understood Gibbons' decline and fall of the Roman Empire, you've got to look for something positive to do in the future, not just defend your own society. You can defend 65 times, but on the 66th you'll get taken away. You need to keep looking at substantive ways of changing so that you can innovate in the future. Innovation is my version of ship that Luke mentions. And if we don't do that, then we're going to have a problem. Yes, it requires a vision. It's one we should work on because I don't think we've just had this government in the way that you said it. We've all been guilty of this. And we as individuals, as an academic community, as an industry, all of us have to come up with what we think a vision for the future is. But we need one.
2: Yes, I'm not sure Seneca had much to say about television. Um, I I, I can't think of a relevant quote. Um, Look, look, there is much to celebrate about British television and we don't make enough noise about it. Um, We absolutely lead the field in innovation in television here in this country. We have an incredibly fertile, very lively, independent production sector. Um, The broadcasters are very strong I, I came back from Australia via Los Angeles. The American networks look to Britain for their next big hits. Um, we, we do not make enough noise about it. We don't celebrate it enough. But the truth is, we lead the world in, in original television, and we should make much more of it.
1: So we certainly have that. Um, but some incredible percentage of four big formats in the world is British.
2: In, That's right. In relation yeah. to uh, yes.
1: its... Over half the
2: And it accounts for a huge formats. amount of our export markets, and um, it's, it's just rarely talked about.
4: No, uh, I think that what actually determines power, if you study history, is economics. And um, we need to release the animal spirits out there amongst inventive and energetic people who will create new industries and businesses and jobs. And I agree that, in a sense, requires a national will. It requires the right circumstances. But I don't think it is centrally directed. I think it comes from many different centres. And as I say, I think it's about, uh, you know, countries that uh, financially do well are powerful. And the problem that the West has, amongst other things, particularly America and places like us, is debt. And we owe it to the East, And this is a very profound economic problem, and this is what is undermining our influence.
7: Elaine and Luke, you've talked about the two ends of the spectrum of hope. Uh, We all need hope. Um, The hope of having a job, the hope of being able to pay the payroll, and then the other end of the spectrum, the hope of being a celebrity, winning the lottery. I wondered if, um, firstly, the Commodore would would, would talk about hope in terms of our armed forces, um, the hope that if you're overseas, that you will come back to a job, um, knowing in this climate that, that you might not, um, and whether, following uh, your comments, it, Luke and Elaine would um, talk about um, their advice to the armed forces about how they would give our <coughs> troops um, hope today.
3: Okay, that, that's a serious question to, uh, to, to, to finish on, so I'll just lighten it. I have no intention of going for an X-factor uh, interview for the next <laughs> show. So, yeah, put you on that one? Um, Luke was right. We've had a defense review. There will be uh, people made redundant in our business. That's going to be uh, a very difficult issue uh, for us to manage. And we need to make sure that we look after those people uh, ethically and appropriately. It's inevitable that some of those people are going to be. Uh, serving in operational theatres at the moment. Um, What I do know is that for us, those redundancies will come top to bottom. Uh, They won't just be focused in one particular area. Uh, But Luke was right. Economics is where the country gets its strength from. Without economics, there is no ability to pay for a force uh, for defence. So what I hope I see for all the armed forces, and obviously the Navy, is that we take this opportunity through the actions to get the deficit sorted out, get the economy onto a a, a basis, and as the Prime Minister said in his speech, uh, though it's not policy, that we look towards a modest increase in our spending on defence from 2015 onwards, such that uh, we can actually uh, afford to provide the type of capability that gives us stability for trade and development in this country. That's got to be our way ahead.
2: I think in terms of um, the media coverage of the armed forces, I mean, there's no question it's seen uh, quite a change over the last few years, and I think uh, we were, the media was probably a little slow to recognise, in fact, what was a public upsurge in support for the armed services and you know the those the news coverage of what was going on in Wooden Bassett was a kind of alarm bell I think for lots of people working in the media that we perhaps were not reflecting sufficiently what what people were feeling. Um, I, we next week on ITV1 will be covering the Millies the the awards um, in, in a program Night of Heroes. Um, I, I, I think you know there's no question three years ago that that was not broadcast um, on a mainstream channel. And I think uh, I think we, we would have to put our hands up and say we were slow, but, but everybody is there now in recognising that this is, these are very important stories that need to be told and that the public feel very strongly about them.
4: Um, I've written before about the fact that actually I've had a very positive experience about uh, working with and taking on uh, ex-armed forces personnel in my businesses, and I've also backed in two cases um, ex military men in startups, and I've, uh, both have succeeded. I've found them to be uh, strong in leadership, uh, utterly reliable, unbelievably hard working, very disciplined, uh, totally honest, all sorts of really important fundamental qualities uh, they've displayed that are. Um, really powerful and, and necessary for uh, good executives and, and um, successful entrepreneurs. And um, I believe that, well, in fact, I'm, I'm aware of at least two uh, charities that help get soldiers in starting their own businesses uh, uh, or members of the armed forces in starting their own businesses. I think it's, it's a well-worthwhile idea uh, because I think that sense of... Um, self-reliance and so forth that a lot of people get in the forces uh, is what's necessary in, uh, in business too. And um, I think, you know, maybe they need some conversion courses in areas like accounts, uh, selling skills and so forth. But the truth is that, um, no, my experiences have been more or less uniformly good. And in a way, I think all those talented people that are going to be let go by the armed forces, I think maybe they will be a, a useful boost to the private sector. I hope so.
1: Thank you. Well, thanks to our wonderful speakers, Elaine Bedell, Commander Tarrant, and Luke Johnson. Thanks to Coots for hosting us in this very proper place. This is the first atrium, the first, you know, down there is the first 1970s atrium. You know, they're going to refresh it a bit, but when we first saw it, blimey, you know. London hadn't had atrial buildings with great soaring spaces. And who but the Queen's banker to do it first? (laughs) And thank you all for coming.